When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today's guest is Phil Stutz. Phil is a psychiatrist and the co-author with Barry Michaels of The Tools and Coming Alive. If you're not familiar, Phil is known for his visualization exercises called The Tools, which he uses to help people overcome hidden blocks and create real growth. What's so compelling about Phil's work is that he takes an active approach so that people can start to feel better right away. But there's also a very spiritual aspect to it, which I'll let him tell you more about. We talk about the invisible forces at work and the power within each of us to move forward, both collectively and individually. So let's get to my conversation with Phil Stutz. I'd love to start at the beginning and really how you came to want to be a therapist. Oh, boy. Huh. Okay. It's an interesting story. It started when I was nine years old. I had a brother that died. And I, I was nine. He was six. And my parents had no spiritual, emotional, any kind of backup. You know, they're atheists. It was the Upper West Side. You probably grew up on the Upper East Side. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Anyway. I lived on 78th Street. Sometimes I go back there just to take a look at where it happened because my whole life, in a way, either began or, or ended either way at the time of his death. And I, I can remember it. What um, happened? Well, I was coming home from school, and just as I got to the front door of the building, my mother and father pulled up in a cab. And the second I saw them, I, I knew he was dead. And they, they didn't, my mother didn't tell me anything about it. She didn't allude to it. She just walked right past me. It wasn't a cruel thing. It was just, it was too much for her. She had no resources. Anyway, from that time, so it was death that intruded itself into the family. And I was too young for it, but I was appointed the, how would I say this? I was appointed as the watchdog to deal with death going forward. And the immediate evidence of this was like if I, if I were to come home from school, or let's say I was playing in the park, and I, I had to be home at 5. If I was home by 5.05 or 5.10, they would crack up. They would just go crazy. And this would happen all the time. The other thing that happened is they, oh my, not, not my mother, my father appointed me as a doctor, and he wouldn't let go of it. And my father was slick. You know, he, he wouldn't say you have to be a doctor. He wouldn't do it like that. What he would do is he would he would take doctors like the pediatrician that was taking taking care of my brother, and he would just adulate them. Basically, basically the message was you can do whatever you want, but whatever you want is nothing. It means nothing unless you become a doctor. 
So I did it. I, I became a doctor. It was okay. So that that was the, the first step of the thing. The second step was psychiatry, which yeah. psych, psychology I loved and I was interested in. The rest of medicine I really wasn't. So, and in the senior year of medical school, I made it like a, it was turned out to be a good decision. I said, I love this, being, being a shrink. I have no interest in the other stuff at all. See, at that time, being a shrink, now it's different because of money, but at, at that time, being a shrink was like the lowest thing on the totem pole. The only thing that was lower than that was probably a dermatologist. These were things where you didn't have to get up early in the morning and you didn't have to get blood on your hands. Now everything's you know, completely different. So, it, but I don't look at it as I was pushed into it. I mean, I, I was, but it, it, it felt like it came from a higher thing, you know, and probably in, in some ways culminating now. And I remember I, I felt when I said to myself, I'm going to be a shrink because I can't stand the other stuff. I felt really guilty. I, fe- I felt like I'd take the sissy, the sissy's way out. But, and I remember, when, I remember exactly when I decided I was going to become a shrink. And I, for some reason, I said to myself, I know I can't make any money doing this. I, the ceiling will be $55,000 a year. I don't know where I got that number from. But anyway, for me, it's both, there, there was a lack of any kind of guidance on the one hand, but on the other hand, it actually turned out well and it, in, a, in a way that it wouldn't have otherwise. I probably would have ended up as a screenwriter or something like that. And by the way, I have a couple of scripts I want you to read. Just one or two. <laughs> okay. So, so do you think it was because of the role that your parents put you in? Were you trying to help them metabolize emotions? Were you trying to keep stability in the house? Like, did was that really the precursor so that when you understood what psychiatry was, you felt like you slotted into it? Yes, definitely. So there were two things going on. My parents, mostly my father. He just wanted me to be a doctor. He didn't know, you know, he, he didn't even consider psychiatry being a doctor. I, I give him credit for one thing, though. When I said to him, I'm doing it, he said, he said, okay. You know, he was pissed, but he did say, okay. So anyway, I think it was both. Mm-hmm. In other words, it was an adaptation to the family. So I was like doing my job on the one hand, but on the other hand, it was something much higher up that said, I don't know quite. It, it kind of said, "This is your place. This is your this is your job in, in life. This is this is your mission." I guess you could say. Even when I was a little kid, I had that feeling. So it was a, it was a combination. I'm a very adaptable person. You might not think so, but I am. Probably, possibly too adapt. So I adapted. Can we kind of lean into that to what you just said around kind of not to put words in your mouth, but a higher power or this idea that this was there was something bigger that was guiding you because you said your your parents were not yeah. spiritual right they didn't have a spiritual practice so therefore they didn't have anything to lean back on when they encountered tragedy in their life but you did it was it sounds like it was innate to you already so what was your experience of that yeah well I'll tell you one interesting thing when he when he was dying you know in those days a kid couldn't go to the hospital no matter who was ill you know so he he went in there and he never came out. Shit! What 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 did he have? He has a rare kind of a kidney cancer, and his pediatrician told me he said the moment I walked in the room and I saw that it was came with a rash. The moment I saw the rash, I, I knew it was terminal. I'll tell you an interesting thing. 
when he was really dying, let's say in the last, I would say six weeks of his life, I, for some reason I go into my, my parents' bathroom, I put one knee up on the toilet bowl basically. And it, I felt like I was some kind of a medieval knight and I, I would talk to God and I would say to him, if Eddie, that's my brother's name, if he dies, I'm not gonna believe in you anymore. Mm. And, as a little kid, you know, I thought I could bargain with God. Yeah, yes, a hundred percent. Another weird thing is, one time we went to the to a baseball game. I think it was a giant game. There was some nuns there, you know, whatever they they do in, in public, you know, trying to raise money. So I said to my father, I was really young. I must have been six years old. I said, could I have a quarter to give to them? I didn't know what a nun was, and and I he said, all right. And I, I walked over, I put the quarter in their, their little thing, you know, they held them up. And as I walked away, I heard one nun say to the other, the other nun, do you know that kid was Jewish? It was half of it was over my head, but there was something about the whole thing that was, I was moved without full awareness of what I was doing. So yes, it, it, was, it was there the whole time, no, no question. Interesting. You have a very wonderful innovative way of practicing, right? You're not the typical psychiatrist that has somebody laying on a couch and just talking and, you know, the psychiatrist is behind and drawing or taking notes or whatever. You take a very, very active approach and I, and I, and dare say a a spiritual approach as well. And I would love to ask a little bit about how you arrived at this approach. Like what, when did you decide that someone just talking about their life wasn't going to be an effective way of making change. Yeah, if, when all this started, I was in probably my mid-20s or late 20s, and I was starting to get a practice. And, you know, at that age, you have a supervisor, a guy that uh, tells you what you're doing right, tells you what you're doing wrong. And I, w- I got pissed off right away because it was, back in the day, you know, that was a psychoanalytic era. They, they wouldn't let you any kind of instruction to the patient any kind of direction and certainly any kind of tools was not only wasn't it viewed as helpful that it was a violation of Freud's you know Freud was a genius but he was a crazy fucking genius (laughs) he he could rationalize anything and turn anything into a, a rule or a law Okay, so here's what happened. So I was starting to get patients and I and I was do I was treating them as I was taught which is go back into the past, tell me what this ha- happened, that happened. And it was okay, but when I, when they would leave, and this was the whole key to the whole thing, when they leave my office, they would leave with without anything. It's like they came in with nothing and they left with nothing. And I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand people paying me and then walking out with nothing. Yeah. And so I, 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 said, I, I said to the supervisor, can't we give them anything besides free association so that they, they feel they have something to walk away with that would give them some confidence? And the guy says, no, don't you dare. That's directive. And well, I said, well, how are they supposed to know what to do? And he said, they'll come to it on their own. And you just have to be patient. And I was rebellious at that age. you know. So I, I, told guys, I said to the guys, is that why they call them patients? <laughs> <laughs> But I didn't like it. I, I didn't like it from the jump. And frankly, I most of it I made up myself because it wasn't a self-help era. It, was, it wasn't like 40 books you could read about this. So I, 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 I took on myself the responsibility to have them come away with something 
And there were two things that were required. One would be the, fa the fact that it worked and, and at least some of the pain would abate, even if it was just for a day or an hour or something. And that's very important because it gives them hope. Mm. At that point, I was doing what was considered to be impossible, but it wasn't impossible. It's just and what were you doing? What were you saying in those moments? Okay. Really, you're making this really tough. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What I would do is, I, okay, this is another kind of weird aspect of this. When I was trying to, let, let's say, for instance, someone is, is passive, shy, can't approach other people, et cetera. And let, let's say the reason was maybe they were they were abused a little bit, not, not, not physically abused, but they were maybe they were dominated by a sibling, something like that. So once they realized that and that was clear to them, for me, I, I would then I would I, it was all done in pictures. None of this was figured out. I would see a picture of them being able to approach somebody and, and I would try to I would feel the picture come alive. And then I would ask myself, what do they need to do to make this picture real, to make it actually happen? And then I would just, I would talk out of my ass. Because at the beginning, I, I didn't know what the tools were. So I would just make them up as, as I went along. But it's interesting, you know, if you, if you keep trying to answer the same demand over and over, you actually get pretty good at it. And there are not that many different types of problems. There, there really are maybe the 10, I don't know, 14. But it's not like you're dealing with 700 problems. And most of the time, the, the two that are most common are anxiety and depression, obviously. And um, what, are, what are the other problems, like well, the standard problems you see? Block is a tremendous problem. Self-attack is, is a tremendous problem. Being able to conduct a relationship, especially if they're, you know, problems, maybe they don't live, one of them has to travel a lot or, or one of them cheats or whatever. The, and I really believe that the, the, the deepest spirituality has to do with relationships, whether it's a relationship with a spouse or a relationship with God or a relationship in a group. And I might as well get, it, get this in now. The, the female factor in the world is now in, in its ascendancy. The female force is coming. Mm -hmm. and, and it has at least two let's say, standout qualities, one of which is the, the desire to, inclusiveness would be the best way to say. And the, the other part of it would be the, the ability to, to feel things and learning to trust your own instincts, which is actually, a, a most for the most part, that's a female quality. So I want to go back to, you know, when you're, you're a young psychiatrist, you're, you're rebellious, you don't think that the kind of classic Freudian approach is really helping anyone. And, you know, take this example of someone's really shy, they can't approach anybody. And you felt you saw a picture accompanied by some energy with yeah. kind of like what they could do to actually move forward. So what would you say to the patient? And then what would you do? Well, there's two parts of the question. You know, one part is how did I develop the tool? Yes. The, the, other, the other part is how here's the beginning of this thing, which is the, it, nothing happens that's good. Nothing happens that changes anyone unless they feel it. And what they're feeling is forces that are invisible, but they're, they're learning how to, how to use, you know, work with, et cetera. So 
what I would do is I, I would pictures would tend to work best because thinking is usually a waste of time. But what I would do is I would I would go over it and over it. It's almost like what an actor would do trying to master a part. And I would I would see what the the goal was, but then the key of the thing was then I would try to sense what was the force that they needed to make the change or to grow or to get forward motion. And it, nothing else matters. It's just seeing where you have to move forward and being able to basically take the risk. And by doing that, you, you, you activate a higher force. Now you could imagine saying that in, you know, 1970 in a medical school, it's like, fuck you, you know, so, <laughs> you know, some of it I couldn't, I couldn't, in any case, I was always considered the, like the freakish black sheep of the whole medical school. You started to say things that made people feel better and gave them hope. So how would you do that? Yeah, it's, you know, that's, it's a great question. It's hard to answer it. I would almost like put myself into the dynamic of what, what was happening. And I would try to feel the force that I, if I was in that position, what would be the force that I needed or wanted? And I say force advisedly. In other words, it's not an idea. It's not a concept. That, that's not going to get it. It's okay. You know, it's interesting. But force is something that impacts and moves. Impacts and moves. That's a definition of a force. And, there were, and the forces that were involved, at least in psychotherapy, were invisible. But they, they, just because they were invisible doesn't mean they didn't have power. So... Mm -hmm. And, and then I would repeat it over and over. And by the way, the, the technology of developing this stuff, I would, it wasn't like I was planning it. I, I was like, a, you know, as my father would say, I was on the balls of my ass, just sliding down a hill. And, but what I always had was a sense of urgency. Like I can't let this guy or woman leave the room with nothing. Mm -hmm. Even if they didn't believe what I was telling them, they still got something because it, well, I guess it brings us to part X because, okay, there's a, there's a part of every single person that doesn't want them to thrive, doesn't want them to move forward, doesn't want them to expand, doesn't want that. Now you say, why is that? Oh, and because it doesn't want it, 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 it has a trick it plays, which is part X will give you a problem that you don't need to have. Drugs and alcohol would be a classic thing. The problem that you don't need to have, then it will give you a solution to the problem that makes it worse. And, you know, the average person is, you know, it's, it's like trying to get a cab at, at 11 o'clock at night on a Saturday night. It, it, it seemed impossible to do, but it's, it's not impossible. But part, part X wants growth to seem impossible. And, and it wants you to give up on your own development. And just to say it again, the personal problem that you have is if you, if you use the tool assiduously and you make some inroads into the problem, you're also helping the whole world. And there's, there's an individual aspect to this and then there's a macro. Um, and, you know, most people at first think, well, that's, you've been in Southern California too long, but it, it's actually, it's, it, that's the nature of higher forces. In other words, the, the, I call it the, the world of uh, the world of small things. There is what you're doing on that small level, which is individual, 
will move the whole world. Now, mm -hmm. not if two people do it, you know, it's, it's like you need a lot of people doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I, I didn't know any of that at that, at that point. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Toomey has a soft side. Discover their new Acer bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Acer is the bag to carry for your 9 to 5 and the 5 to 9 plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Toomey's signature. Shop the full Acer collection on Toomey.com or at a Toomey store near you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Why does Part X exist more broadly? What is the universal function of Part X? Yeah, Part X exists to, you know, it has a double effect, right? It has a negative effect because it's constantly blocking you, making you do stupid things, making you make bad decisions. It causes you to become attached to things. You know, it does a million things that overtly are bad. But the process of fighting those things and the tools you need to fight them cause you to expand. So it's, and it's hard for people to grasp this. It's neither good or bad. It depends how you deal with it. But to, to make it a positive, which means you learn something from the battle with it, for that to happen, you have to have some sense of tools. I, I call that the gap. In other words, you can bring yourself up by going into the past and understanding all these things, what you need to do to change. That ain't good enough. So you have to cross that gap. And crossing the gap means that you, you, you're, you as the shrink and, and the patient, obviously, have to enter into this world of forces. Mm. They have to enter into it. And most people don't like it. It's, for whatever reason, it's, it violates their religion. It's, they don't believe it. They're lazy. There's every excuse you can imagine. You know, what I always tell, tell them is don't believe what I'm saying. Be as negative as you want, but please do what I'm asking you to do. Mm -hmm. Do what I'm asking you to do and then judge. And if, if you don't feel change, fire me. Is Pardex a tool that might feel like an evil force to us, but is actually providing the obstacles so that we use them as tools to grow from. So it's actually a, a yeah. positive. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. But you, you can't do it again as an idea. It's, it's fine, but it doesn't help. You have to have a specific way of identifying that part X is present, a specific way of understanding what it's doing to fuck you up. Mm -hmm. And then you have to have a tool that puts you in motion. So you need a, a little bit of a crowbar to separate your voice from part X's voice. Yes. Such that you can understand, okay, this is, this is a negative force from the universe that's keeping me from expanding and growing and learning. Because if I truly understand the power that I have within me to better myself, then the global forces of evil will be diminished. That's it. That's it. So how do you get people to identify the crowbar and make space between their voice and part X? It's a great question. What I try to what I start what I try to do, at least the beginning, 
is I try to shrink the whole thing down into, into bite-sized pieces. That's why I call it the, it's the world of small things. And then within that, so, okay, so the shy person, is there somebody that you've been afraid to approach? You know, usually it's, it's romantic, but it doesn't have to be. And you, usually they're going to say yes. Then you just want to focus on that. And you have, you have a tool, you know, the classic tool is called the reversal of desire, which means it, it's, it's the, it evokes the principle or the, the law of fear. And the law of fear says, if you avoid fear or, or avoiding people, their, their sense of fear grows. It gets out of, out of control. On the other hand, if you can force yourself to stop avoiding and enter right into the fear, the fear dim diminishes. So that's a, it's a simple, uh, people don't believe it at first, mm. but it, it works. Now, and when I say it works, I, ha I had one guy that was, he, I, I swear this is true, he, he saw me for 14 years. He didn't do one thing that I asked him to do. <laughs> and nothing, it was nothing, he was getting nothing out of it. But it, he was starting to drink too much and his daughters got really pissed. And they said, you should be working on yourself. You have a shrink who's aggressive. Um, and he was so scared of being abandoned by his daughters that he, he actually began to use the tools. And I would say within six weeks, he changed more than in the preceding 14 years, or whatever it was. It's, it's interesting. It's a true story. And, and we should just call out the, the book that you and Barry wrote called The Tools, which really does chronicle every tool for every conceivable state of, of anxiety. The answers in there are pretty incredible. You guys wrote such an amazing book. Thank you. Yeah, that's the great Barry Michaels. You know, he's he's a great partner for me because a lot of things that are difficult for, for me, he does flawlessly, you know, just naturally. So and he's, he's writing, I think, his own book, which if he doesn't, I will kill him. <laughs> I'll pass that along. <laughs> So I want to ask you a little bit about this concept of the field yeah. that, you know, when I was lucky enough to talk to you a few times when I was going through a really tough time in my life, you brought this concept fully into, you know, full relief for me. And it really resonated with me, this idea that we're kind of all playing in this energetic field and the choices we make really can determine outcomes. So will you talk to me a little bit about what is the field and how did you develop this philosophy? Well, it's interesting. There was a guy named Michael Faraday, I think this was like in 1870 something, who discovered the concept of a field, you know, at that time, a psychological field, emotional field versus electromagnetic field. There was no distinction because it was all new. Things like to make up theories anyway. <laughs> um, but what this guy was postulated was very interesting. He said, a thing, what we consider a thing, like let's say you and your physical manifestation, he, he said, isn't what you think it is. It's not what you see. It's actually a field that spreads out to the horizon. That's what it is. And it, that was actually came out of the same shop, so to speak, as the quantum mechanics thing. So there's a whole subatomic world. And at the, you know, there was a split because of the scientists weren't interested in the, in the, you know, the human part of it. But anyway, the point is every human being is 
is themselves part of a field and the work Barry's doing, which is just tremendous. Everybody should, I don't know, whatever, however you can get to him. But the, the point is once you accept that you are more than just meets the eye, you, sp you spread out invisibly to the edges of the universe. Once you have that concept, then things become possible for you that you didn't think were possible. Mm. One, of the, one of the aspects of the field that connects all this stuff is its, its ability to, um, it, it can, a lot of serend, apparently serendipitous events uh -huh. because of the field. So you, so you want the field to quote like you. And there's four rules about, about that. And if, if you play according to the rules, it's not like the field is gonna get you every single thing you want, but it'll be, things, things will begin to appear possible that you didn't think were possible. So I, I guess I should mention the, the fourth parts of the field. So yeah. the, the first part is self-restraint. The, mm -hmm. the second part is non-attachment. The third part is called a microtransaction, which means what a microtransaction is, it's, it's like, let's say you're an executive, you have to go to the bathroom, you walk down the hallway and the janitor is there mopping the floor. Now, on some level, you, the executive doesn't have time to get into a conversation with the chat, but he could look at him in a way that says, on this level of the, the level of small things, we're equal, you're human. The idea is feel, the field will reach out to include everything. The field is the cutting edge, the power, the, the force that comes when you include everybody, or at least you, you attempt to include everybody. Mm. And you can see if evil in the world now is through disinclusion. But it's, it's such a fascinating rubric for being a successful human being. And so simple, right? So the importance of self-restraint, that's really about curbing your ego, yeah. right? And, and, and cause generally reactivity is, is never coming from a magnanimous place. Yes. That's right. See, the, the field exists on a like kind of like a higher plane, yeah. and if you can't restrain your impulses, especially the lowest ones, you're you're putting yourself way down here, and it's almost like the field can't see you. It can't help you. You don't even exist if you're just functioning in that lower. Got it. Frequency. Uh, yeah. Why is non-attachment important? Because, see, non-attachment allows recovery from something you failed at or you think you failed at. If you're attached to something and, and you can't manifest itself, you can't manifest itself, then if you're attached to it, then that means you're gonna die. I know it might sound crazy, but that's, there's gonna be an extreme punishment. And non-attachment says I can go for this thing, I can work as hard as I want to on it, but I'm also willing not to have it. I discovered this once interesting. When I was a freshman in college, we were playing this school Newark of Rutgers. We were killing them. They weren't a very good team. So towards the end of the game, I went up for a jump shot and I saw over in my left corner, I saw the referee bringing the whistle to his lips. And I figured, well, the ball is dead, you know? So I figured I'd just take the shot anyway. It didn't matter, I thought. But what happened was it turned out the guy never blew the whistle. 
So it was a live play and, and the shot went in. And I remember, th I was 16 years old. I remember thinking if I could be this relaxed and this focused, I'd be unstoppable. But it's, it's easy to do it when you think it's a dead ball. It's harder to do when you know it's not a dead ball. But the, the willingness to lose, and technically the tool is the willingness to lose everything, gives you tremendous power. Yeah, and isn't that backed by physics in a way? Like that, like didn't they, didn't they do tests that showed that, you know, if you're concentrating on something in a certain way, its outcome is different than if you don't concentrate on it or if you concentrate on it in a negative way or in an attached way. Yeah. I always forget the name of that experiment. Basically, they were shooting electrons through a screen. Yes. And what they found out is that they could not predict, even though all the circumstances were, were the same, so let's say the first electron and the second electron, if there was somebody watching, observing, the outcomes were altered as opposed, and I, it's technical how they measured this stuff. But the, I was just trying to think of the, there's a word for it. Well, basically it's, it's that if, if an electron, see electrons have spins on them, like clockwise or counterclockwise, and they found that if, if you were observing it, it, it would affect the spin on the electron, it, it, it would go, let's say, from counterclockwise to clockwise. And it works at an infinite distance. And that, that's considered uh, mystical, you know, in our society. Anyway, so, so that's, that's not attachment. And it, it gives you tremendous power because, again, if you don't, if you remain attached, the field will abandon you. So can we talk about this documentary for a second? So what, what happened here? Jonah Hill is your patient and he came to you and said, I want to make a documentary about you? Pretty much, yeah. He's pretty <laughs> direct. I would say that's exactly what happened. I said, excuse me? Where's <laughs> your wrong? So he's a, he's a very good director, very good. And he makes you feel relaxed because... I am not a relaxed person, you know, in performance. You might not have been able to guess that, but anyway, so I think be, because I've been treating him, I, I don't know for how long, maybe five, four years, and he had really changed. And again, he was, he was capable of doing things he wasn't, or he didn't think he could do up until that point. Like what? Give me one. One would be the need to entertain and tell jokes and take the attention off the parts of himself that he didn't feel good about. He was able to do that. You know, it's a lifetime thing. So then tell um, me how he convinced you to do it. Oh, that was easy because I, I you know, I know him pretty well. He, he believed in everything I've, I've told you today. And he, he felt that it actually could help the world, which I, I agreed with. Mm. And as soon as, as soon as he said that, I said, okay, this is actually could be worth something. Which, and without me going into another tirade about socioeconomic issues, but therapy is ridiculously expensive and nobody charges more than me, but it's, there has to be another way for people to have access to this stuff. Yeah. And the beauty of it is you can actually, to a degree, to a degree, you can actually do it yourself. Mm -hmm. Now you're much better off with a shrink, no question. I'm not, I'm not trying to imply that, but the idea that somebody could use a tool and, and have an experience that empowered them on their own just by, you know, following this thing. He wanted to get that out there to, in the public as reality. So 
Yeah, he's an artist, so I, I guess that was his way of trying of giving back. Mm. Uh, but it turns out he's a, he's a terrific director, I think. Yeah. By the way, since you're an actor, I should remind you that my real goal is to be is to direct. So, so when when are you going to do that? <laughs> I I retired anyway. You don't want me in your movie. If you direct something, then I'll be in it. How's that? I'll come out of retirement for you. All right. You heard it here. So what are you, what, you know, having done the documentary and I imagine you've seen the documentary, do you feel that it, it does deliver kind of a democratization of, of, of therapy? Like what is the, what is the exciting component of this for you? Well, here's, uh, yes, just the raw information and what the tool is, what part X is, how part X tries to fuck you up. Does it go into all of that in the doc? Briefly, you know, it's only an hour and a half long. But yeah, I would say the second third of the the film deals with that directly. And what they did was cute was because I like to draw these little cards, you know, so there's a visual and they... They didn't actually put in my cards, but they and a really a really good artist rendered my handwriting, which is pathetic. Yeah, you know, there's something interesting happening now, which is there's a tremendous focus on psych, psychiatry, psychotherapy, epidemic, mental illness. You know, all this. I'm not sure why it's happening now, but it's def- it's definitely happening. This would be a good addition addition to that. It's like a way. You know what it is? I think there's just more emotional problems now. Well, people are more aware of their emotional problems. It's not as secret as I think. But it would be nice. You know, like sometimes I see things in the paper and I know what it is. You know, it's like pay $100 a month and you get your choice of every month you can switch shrinks. And, you know, they make it sound like one of those spot, you know, luxury spas where you get somebody work a different person working on you every time you come in that's not that's not going to get it either it was, somehow we have to split the difference between the tools which can be somewhat mechanical and some kind of real transference or real faith in the shrink and how do you do that in a mac level i don't know but but anyway i saw this happening so i i said to myself he's very interested in it as well and he, he doesn't need money anymore. So we said, you know, basically we said we'll try it as a like an, as an experiment. Here's the thing about it on a, on a personal level that was so impressive. After about a year of shooting, I would say maybe a year and a half, we both looked at each other, but mostly mostly it was Jonah, and he said, um, "This sucks." In other words, every time there was a, a real a chance to go deeper. Either he or I would play it off with jokes. You might not realize it, but I like to tell a lot of jokes. So, but, but anyway, the point was both of us were using it to avoid the deeper aspects of what we we're trying to convey. So he tore the whole thing down and started again. And I said, wow, that is impressive. Wow. But, you know, he's also a huge star. Was that some of your part X too? Deflecting or not wanting to be 100%. intimate? Right. Yeah, 100%. So how much do you have to be aware of your own stuff? And like, how often in your day are you fighting part X? Oh, I'm fighting it all day, especially now, because I I have like stage fright or whatever you want to call it. And then I have this, 
which you know makes me more self-conscious. Parkinson's? So really, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm much better with it, but it's you know it's still there. So but but, but all, you but 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 you say as well that Parkinson's has given you more insight. I mean, in its way, it, it's has it been has it been a teacher or has it has there been anything positive from it? Tremendous positive, tre- tremendous, way beyond anything I, I could have imagined. One of the reasons is it, it's given me a sense of family because the, 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 the neurologists don't want me alone without supervision. I don't know how much longer that's going to go because they don't want you to fall, basically. If you fall and you hit your head, usually it's the beginning of a downward slope in terms of functioning. So that's one thing. And, and I, I was just incredibly lucky that the people that I hired, you know, to watch over me. So they're all great and they all love each other. Um, oh, lovely. So, so I, I've gotten that out of it. The other thing I've gotten out of it is there's certain things because I used to be athletic, you know. So there's certain things I might push myself to do, and I have to slow that down. And my my default thought on this should be, don't do it. So, right. so that's the selfish thing. Thing and, and it's helped a lot. That's great. I'm glad that there's been a silver lining because I can imagine too. It's it's daunting to receive a diagnosis like that. Oh yeah, that's another story. Right? Yeah, and we're gonna run out of time. But you know what? I would. I guess if I could go a t- couple of minutes over just to ask you something that is relevant and that I've been thinking about for myself and. And my daughter, we had a, a, a conversation about this other way, this that and you've talked about before with me in, in a conversation a long time ago, but this idea of, of perfectionism and, and how it's, you know, it can really act as a, a force to keep you, you know, out of your highest self. What is a tool that you use to confront perfectionism? Okay, the first, first thing is, if you if you're judging your own work or anything about yourself, you can't just stop judging that. You have to stop judging everything. That that's the secret of it. You can't judge. And if you if you think of it as judgment is like a heavy stone spiritually and it holds you down. So in any type of judgment, even a positive judgment will hold you down. What you need to go up to the to the higher level is complete love, complete acceptance, and ignorance, which means I don't really know where this is going. It's none of my business. And that's, that's very effective. Now, the, tr- the trick of it is you have to do it all the time. And all the time means literally all the time. And you know, usually someone won't get to that point until something really bad has happened. Mm-hmm. And they can't. They're, they're too weak, too frightened, too ignorant to meet to meet it head on. So, so what the tool does is it can't change your outer circumstance, but what it can do is affect your reaction. And a part of that is is called speed. And speed just means once you realize there's something you need to do, whatever that thing is, the more time that elapses with you not doing that thing, the weaker you become. Mm-hmm. So there's a premium on, on speed within reason. You know, you don't want to buy a $4 million house in, 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 a, in a day. But in general, speed carries with it its own 
force. It is, it's literally the force. Now, the other big one with perfectionism is the, the inner, when they say love, love yourself, or you, you, you don't know how to love yourself. At first, I, I never knew what they were talking about. I said, that sounds like trying, it's bullshit. What does that <laughs> mean? But I found out what it meant, at least from my point of view. What it meant was that there's a, there's a part of you that we call the shadow, and that's what Barry says such great work, like great work on it. And the shadow, in, in, for this, the purposes of this, the shadow represents your failings, weaknesses, imperfections, failures, all of that stuff. If you can love that part of yourself, forget about the good parts, if you can love that part of yourself, then you've, not only is it a contribution to the world, but it also has effects in your immediate life. So that's the dynamics of self-love. So, and that's the antidote to, to perfectionism. That's beautiful. Bill, thank you so much for joining me today on the Goop podcast. Thank you for everything. And, you know, you have these very long tentacles that have helped me and through Barry and just, and directly, and then so many people, and you're just such a wonderful spirit in the world and brain. Thank you so much. Um, and I, I hope I get to talk to you soon. Yeah, well, within the next five years, definitely. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's episode with Phil Stutz. Be sure to watch Stutz, the new Netflix documentary directed by Jonah Hill about Phil's work. It is out now. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.